Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. your Bibles and uh, open up to start to the book of 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Chronicles is where I want you to turn first. And uh, we're going to be in several places this morning. I'm going to put some scripture up here and uh, we're going to read some specifically. We're going to read in 2nd Chronicles. We're going to read in Acts. We're going to read in Colossians. Uh, This is the beginning of of a new teaching series, and uh, this, is, this is probably, to date, one of the more challenging series uh, in preparation that I've done, uh, because it's focused in on a concept that I think is one of the most challenging concepts for most followers of Jesus. And, in fact, when you think about prayer... In the world today, it's kind of interesting to look at how it's wielded. And not just in the church, but in culture. In fact, at times, even the most ungodly of people resort to prayer. And we see this all over the place. Uh, The most common phraseology I think I see is... Uh, something bad will happen to someone and someone will say, I'm sending you good thoughts and prayers. And my immediate response is, what does that mean? Especially coming from someone who does not actually live or desire to follow Jesus. And yet, there is something in us that when words seem to be absent... And nothing else seems to work. We resort to prayer. Now, the reason there is need for us to actually spend time on this is because prayer, like many other words in our modern world, regardless of what you believe about God, regardless of your motivation, much like the word love or the word blessed, or the word called, and a host of others, prayer becomes something we employ to communicate sympathy or give us some facade that we're doing something in a circumstance where we simply do not know what to do. And my goal is not to cause you to seem like Prayer is some impossible thing to be achieved. Rather, my goal in this series would be to help us relearn how to pray in light of who God is and in light of what Scripture says. And so today we're simply going to ask the question, why should we pray at all? Why pray? 
And not only are we going to seek to answer the question, why pray? We're also going to seek to define from Scripture, what is prayer? What's the point? And what's the purpose of prayer? Now, in the scope of all of this, I want you to wrestle with these things beyond Sunday morning. And I say that because uh, when I first started studying this, I thought I had a decent grasp on how I was going to teach this series to you. And the more I've studied, the more I have been transformed in my own view of what prayer is and the purpose of that. And the more I'm convinced that we as the church largely wield prayer as something kind of abstract without actually knowing what the purpose is. And if I were to, if I were to survey you, and I want you to just be really honest here for a second by a show of hands, how many of you today, sitting here right now, those of you online, same question, how many of you today would say, an area of my spiritual life that I need to improve on is prayer? Okay. I'm with you in this camp. And in fact, I am very convinced that prayer becomes the most challenging for the people who seem to have the most when it's a worldly, from a worldly perspective. And the reason for that is because we so easily become dependent on so many other things that prayer becomes like an antibiotic we use to treat an infection. And as soon as the infection is gone, we stop taking the medicine. And the danger of that is that as we look at God's word, prayer becomes not just something we do, but a part of who we are as the church. And I feel strongly, family, that this is an area we have got to grow in before we can do anything else. And in the last three years, as we prayed over, as the elders and I prayed over, what would the Lord have us walk through as a church family in 2022? This became the top of the list in priorities, simply because if we have not figured this out, then we are destined to repeat the same cycles and dependence on ourselves rather than fixing our eyes more fully on the God of all creation and allowing who we are and what we do to be shaped by Him. So, I want to begin this time because I feel it would be ironic for me and foolish of me to talk about prayer with us without us first pausing and going to the Lord in prayer. And so let's commit this time to Him that He would grow us and teach us according to His Word and according to His promises. Father, as we come to you today, we do so in humility, recognizing just how little we fully comprehend who you are. And yet also knowing and believing that in all your holiness, You sent Jesus while we were still sinners. You sent Jesus when there is no hope, when there was no hope. You sent Jesus. 
And it is only through His sacrifice and the life we've been given through Him that we have any ability to come into Your presence, God. Father, we know and believe that Your Word is powerful. We know and believe that Your Spirit is the only entity that can bring transformation in our hearts, in our minds, in our whole being. So, Father, we are dependent upon You to fulfill Your promise to not let Your your Word return void, to fulfill Your promise to transform us as lowly sinners to be like Jesus according to Your magnificent glory and power. All of this in worship of who You are above anything and everything else. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why should we pray? Now this first answer I'm going to give you is going to seem like a duh answer. But it's important. And it's simply this. The Bible tells us to do it. Now you and I, practically speaking, don't need a lot in order to accomplish much. What you need is the right motivation. And unfortunately, for many of us, the truth that the Bible is the Word of God is not motivation enough. Now, I'll be the first one to say, if you're walking with someone or trying to walk with someone who does not yet believe that Jesus is the only way, and some of you here today, maybe that way, you may be sitting here going, I, I don't really know or believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I don't really know or believe that Jesus is the only way. And in those settings, of course it doesn't make sense for you to turn to the Bible and go, well, this is absolutely true. And that is where we as the church have a calling to walk alongside of people Not to simply give them the answers, but more importantly to expose them to the God of creation. However, when we choose to commit ourselves to following Jesus, when we choose to say, I'm surrendering my life in order that I might become more like Jesus then in the same breath, we surrender our own will to the will of God. I'm the, be the first one to tell you as well, it's a lot easier to say I surrender than to actually walk and live in it. It's a lot easier to say I'm done, I give up, I give in, I can't do anymore, when you're in a season or a state of suffering or oppression. But as soon as things even out, ah, you know what, God... You're good. I'll put you back on the shelf. We'll meet again next hard time. Right? I often think of this similar. So one of the things my kids and I love to do, we love to, we love to have Nerf Wars together. Okay? So much fun. It's become more fun. It used to not be fun because I would get way too excited and then someone would get shot in the head and 
they would cry and I would feel bad and that, that would be the end of it. Now, now they're a lot more, a lot more prone to fight me back. But there's many times that I, I, I have a really fast Nerf gun and if I pull that out, they stand no chance. Okay? Because I'm dad, so naturally I have to have the biggest one. Okay? Anyway, the common response is when that, that when, when that's flying, they're like, oh, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. Okay, I'm done. I put my Nerf gun away and then what happens? They jump out and they get me. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't really surrender. You just said you did. Just try to trick me. And I thought about that and I'm going, isn't that similar to how we treat prayer and how we treat God? It's like, God, I need you. I need you here. I need you present. I need, I, I, I need this now. And then I'm surrendered to you. But then, you know, things kind of get better and I'm, I'm not really surrendered. I just was surrendered when I felt like I needed to be surrendered. And that's often revealed in our prayer life. And the simple, the really simple answer to the answer to the question, why should I pray? Is because God in Christ has called us to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of hit you with several specific passages and then we're going to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 so you can flip there. 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says this to Timothy, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I desire that men should pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, probably one of the most quoted passages on prayer. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. In Christ Jesus. When I come to 1 Thessalonians 5, or I ever have someone ask me, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. I go, I do. 1 Thessalonians 5. You want to know, any of you here today, questioning what is God's will for me? It's this. How do I know that? Because it says it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That's a starting point. It's not an exhaustive one. It's a starting point. Luke 18.1 describes a parable Jesus told. It says he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is just a handful. A handful. Scripture commands us to pray. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And there's a lot happening here in 2 Chronicles. But ultimately, what's happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is the temple of the Lord has finally been finished. That which was started under David and wasn't finished, but David knew that. The Lord revealed that to him and was finished under Solomon's rule as king. And they are dedicating the temple to the Lord. And I want to preface that with this context because this verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is often quoted miserably out of context. It is often wielded miserably out of context. You need to understand, this is being spoken at the dedication of Solomon's temple right here in the Bible. 
And here's what it says, starting in verse 12 of chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. What place? The temple. Everyone say the temple. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now this is an amazing promise of God. And to grasp the full significance of this, you've got to understand that for so many years, the nation of Israel wandered around in the desert carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was where the Lord resided. He was present with them. And then every time they moved, they would have to set up the tent of the tabernacle where God would dwell. And so now that Solomon's temple is finished, it was a permanent dwelling worship place for the Lord. And so God is committing to Solomon, I'm going to reside here. And when trouble and calamity come, when all of this comes, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and come and pray, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, Flip over with me, clear over to Acts, okay? Jump from Old Testament to New Testament. Acts chapter 17. And this is where we transition from the Old Covenant, where the nation of Israel, per the law, was required to make sacrifices on behalf of their sin, where God dwelled within the temple and His people corporately came to one location in order to worship and sacrifice to the Lord to a shift that takes place where Jesus fulfills the entirety of the Old Testament law in himself. And then what comes of that is this amazing promise. So Acts 17, I'm going to start in verse 24. And I'm going to read through verse 31. Acts 17, verse 24. Says the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Pause for a minute and just sit in awe of that statement for a minute. And in fact, when we read something like that in Scripture, it should make us pause and just go, wow. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Amazing truth here. And the focus and emphasis is this church. You don't have to come to a physical structure in order to encounter the Lord. He is near each one of us. In fact, Romans 1 says that all creation gives testimony to who God is so that no one is without excuse. Why should we pray? Because Scripture has called us into that. And more specifically, in Jesus, we have access to the Father directly. Now, this is a unique concept within evangelicalism. I don't know if you recognize this or not. There's a lot of other faith groups that convince people you have to go through another avenue or another person in order to pray to God. And the promise, the truth here of Scripture is that God doesn't dwell in some house made by man. But he's much nearer to each one of us. How is that made possible? It's made possible in Jesus. The very hope and promise that gives us salvation not only brings us a hope of eternity, but also promises us access to the Father through the blood of our Savior. So that we don't have to wonder, did my prayer make it? Was it enough? Have I done enough for God to hear me? has nothing to do with you. And everything to do with what Christ has done for you. Now here's the hard part about this. Our intercessor, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes on our behalf, is Jesus. So if you are here today and you are trying to pray or gain any kind of hope or comfort through any other means except Jesus, you are sorely misinformed. And it may make you feel better to pray to some God you don't know, but I'm telling you it will do no good until we recognize that we, through Christ, have access to the God of the universe. In spite of our sin. And this is where this intersects full bore with the gospel. Church, if we really understand the good news that there's salvation in Jesus' name, 
then it should propel us into a relationship that incorporates prayer because there is no other way we would have access to God but through Jesus. Jesus actually said this in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You want a gut punch of a verse. This is it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How many of us say, God, I love you. I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for me. But we don't really even know what God has commanded us. Or we do because we've heard it so many times, but we don't really live in it. You know, that's, we talk about those things at church. But that's it. Family, I'm so convicted by this reality. Because somehow we have convinced ourselves that the solution to our problems is getting people to come to a building instead of getting people to recognize who God is and what he has done for us. That some, for some reason, we've convinced ourselves that our responsibility is to get them sitting down in here so that Pastor Matt or Pastor Brandon or Pastor Drew can talk to them about what the Bible says instead of actually living like someone who's been transformed by the gospel. And our prayer life becomes one of the most easily diagnosed realities of where we're really at in our spiritual lives. How dependent are we really upon God? Scripture commands us to pray. Now there's a second reason. Why should we pray? And this comes from Colossians 3. So you could turn over there with me. Colossians 3. And this doesn't directly mention prayer, but as you study the whole of what Scripture says... And if we see prayer as a symptom of where our spiritual lives are really at, then this becomes very important as we consider the challenge in growing in how we pray, in what we pray, in how much time we pray. Why should we pray simply this? Because our eyes are fixed on the wrong things. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Honest assessment. (laughs) How many of us wake up in the morning, put our feet on the floor, and think and say, May I fix my eyes on the things above today, not the things on earth. In every circumstance that I encounter, may I see the opportunity to live and speak the good news about Jesus today. 
in every moment of frustration and oppression and anguish today, may I model Jesus because his hope never fails. I would love if that just becomes the the normal thing that every single one of us commits to at the very beginning of our day. But here's what really happens. We get woke up in the morning by our phone ringing and we jump into our day with our to-do list and the problem that's already has already got to be solved. We open our eyes and the first thing that comes to our minds is our to-do list for the day or how we're going to spend that day. Or we roll out of bed and we jump in the shower and all of a sudden all we can think about is the overwhelming items in my life that are causing me stress and anxiety that I just don't know how to cope with. And at some point in my day, if I'm lucky, I may crack open a Bible or pull open the Bible app to read the verse of the day. But in all scope of how I've prioritized my day, God is not a priority for me. Everything else is. And what this reveals about where our hearts are at is that we love to use God for our own purposes. But when it comes to our lives being aligned with his commandments... That becomes secondary. And I'm saying all this, church, in a way I hope you recognize, I have been so deeply convicted by this in my own life recently. It doesn't matter what you do. I wake up most mornings and the first thing that comes to mind is all the different things I have to do in the day. I wake up in the morning sometimes and the first thing that wakes me up is my kids banging on the door. Or screaming and fighting with each other before I've even rolled out of bed. And the temptation is that to start my day, and I believe this is one of Satan's most effective schemes, is to get us to fix our eyes on anything else in the horizontal before we actually fix our eyes in the vertical. And yet, the only way we're going to be able to deal with the stuff in the horizontal in a way that glorifies and honors God is if we first set our eyes on Him and align ourselves with Him. Proverbs 3 emphasizes this even more. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Our relationship to prayerfulness, church, must be vertical before we can accurately assess the horizontal. And oftentimes we do the opposite. We Here's how we treat prayer. We look at all of the horizontal problems that we're struggling with, and then we take them to God. Uh, So-and-so is sick, and -and so-and-so is struggling mentally, and -and so-and-so... Uh, hurt themselves. So-and-so is looking for a job. I'm anxious and stressed and uh, discouraged. And uh, this is this is where the horizontal is, God. And I'm just telling you, what would it look like if our prayer life switched places and began vertically in order that I might see that which is horizontal on the earth through God's lens rather than my own? What would it look like if my prayer life became more about what God has already promised instead of all the things and the unknowns that I'm dealing with right now? The more dependent we become on God, the more disciplined we become in prayer. 
And the reality is, that's revealed. That oftentimes, we, in the circumstances where we've lost the most control, that's when we spend the most time in prayer. And yet, our dependence on God, shouldn't that be every day, every moment, every hour? Lord, I need you every hour. I need you, as we sang earlier. Do do we believe that? To be honest with you, when I before I studied for the series and I was jotting down thoughts, I wrote this phrase the other way. I wrote down, the more disciplined we are in prayer, the more dependent we become on God. And as I studied scripture, I realized that is exactly how we treat prayer. And it's exactly opposite of the purpose of prayer. Instead, Our prayer life is really a symptom of how dependent on God we actually are. The more dependent we become on God, the more disciplined we will be in prayer. For so long, we've convinced ourselves, I just need to try harder. I need to read another book on prayer. I need to start another prayer meeting. I just need to practice more and more and more. While those things can all be good, if we still haven't changed where our hearts and our eyes are fixed, don't expect for your prayer life to improve. Because it's in our dependence on God that we see our need to discipline ourselves in prayer. If we struggle in the area of praying consistently, then the real truth, hard truth, is we struggle to depend on God consistently. Because if we really depended on Him, man, we're going to talk with Him. And we're going to converse with Him. Now in all of this, This is a question that we have to ask. How do we define prayer? And you might go, well, what? That seems silly. But it's really not. If we've misconstrued prayer, then we, practically speaking, need to define prayer in order to understand prayer, in order to biblically practice prayer. So I'm curious. This is where I'm going to take a drink and you all are going to respond. And I'm going to hear what you say. If someone approached you today... And asked you to define what prayer is, what would you tell them? Communicating with God. What else? That's sufficient? What else might you say? What was that? Trusting in God. Okay. Prayer is trusting in God. Someone asked you, I'm, I, I've, never, I've never understood what prayer is. What is prayer? What would you say to them? Believing, okay. Worshiping, okay. Talking to God, okay. Faith, what was over here? What's on your heart? What was over here? Looking for guidance, okay. Prayer is looking for guidance. Okay. Relationship. Heard that. Okay. What else? Obedience. Obedience. Prayer is obedience. Okay. Belief. Talking and listening to God. Communicating with God. Okay. So here's this interesting reality. You notice that as we went around the room and kind of talk about this, there's a lot of different perspectives on some of this. 
And in fact, you would probably get even different perspectives uh, if you were to talk to people out and about, even talking with people who uh, don't believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. Prayer is not an entity that is just rooted into Christianity. Okay? Muslims pray. Jews pray. Buddhists pray. This is not... If we just go to someone random and say, yeah, I pray to God, there's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus who are going to go, well, me too. Which all the more emphasizes our need to pray biblically in the scope of our understanding of what prayer even is. Now, something interesting here. The most common response in this is talking to God. Here, This is actually from a book um, that... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch this guy's last name. It's John Anwuchekwa. Anwuchekwa. I got it. His book on prayer. He lists these things as common definitions to how we would define prayer. Talking with God. Prayer is demanding something from God. Prayer is aligning our will with God's. Prayer is wishful thinking aimed in God's direction. Or prayer is some combination of all of these. Now, chances are, whether we have truly identified prayer as one of these definitions or not, we have encountered it or, in our practice of prayer, have lived like one of these is actually true. Now, most people, when you ask them, would respond and say, prayer is simply talking with God. If you had to ask me before studying for this series, I probably would have told you the same thing. And while this is in it of itself not faulty thinking, I want you to consider something with me. Um, turning your Bibles to John chapter 14. <clears throat> John chapter 14, starting in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Here's this very often quoted passage. Jesus said, can you say it with me? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, it says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Think about that statement for a minute. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in, is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus' response here when they say, show us the Father, and that will be enough for our faith, Jesus. He says, guys, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Powerful statement and one of the most evidential passages of Scripture to emphasize the deity of Christ. 
It emphasizes the Trinity. Jesus himself, and this is why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus. Jesus himself is saying, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. Whoa! Now here's where this gets interesting. In Luke 11, Jesus' disciples come to him. And they say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the motive for the whole series in this. Now, if Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and his disciples say, teach us to pray, well, it is reasonable to assume the disciples were pretty comfortable talking with Jesus at this point. And yet Jesus does not turn to them and say, guys, you've been conversing with me for the last so many years. If you've learned to talk with me, you've learned to pray. Instead, he goes into what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer, and he teaches them, this is how you should pray. Gary Miller, in his book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of Prayer, he says this, Prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. Now, if we stop and we think about that for a minute, that is very different in how it motivates us in our prayer lives than me just having a conversation with God with no real direction or purpose or entity. Now, I am not in any way saying that we shouldn't daily, ongoingly have conversations with God about where we're at. In fact, we're going to go to the Psalms later in the series and look at how do I pray when I'm in anguish? suffering we see that the psalmist goes lord i feel like you're far from me lord save me from my enemies but then at the end of each one of those psalms the psalmist redirects the attention and identifies what the promises of the lord are the very lord's prayer that jesus goes on to teach his disciples says give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also forgive others but Beyond that, it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want your will to be done. I want you to fulfill your promises in this life. Now, we want to go even further in this. If we go back to the beginning of time, and Adam and Eve had perfect communion with God, prayer was not present simply because mankind had perfect communion with God. I don't know if you've ever realized that or not. There was no need for an avenue of communication with God through an intermediary because mankind had perfect communion with God. Then sin happens. Sin happens and fragments the community, the communion that mankind had with God. God hadn't changed. Mankind's holiness had Yet, in the midst of all of this, the gospel is proclaimed. In Genesis 3.15, we have a piece of scripture that's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And that's in Genesis 3.15 where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. You shall, he shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
And it was the first moment of promise in the midst of the curse that had just fallen upon humanity. That this would not remain. Fast forward a little bit more. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And Cain ends up killing Abel because of jealousy over his accepted sacrifice. And so now you put yourself in the perspective of Adam and Eve. Well, here is this promise that God had given them. They had two sons, so they're at least in thought would be a moment of hope. God's fulfilling his promises. And then this happens. But you move forward a little bit more, and in Genesis 4, they have a son named Seth. It says in Genesis 4, 25 and 26, And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, in light of what God had promised, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here we see what we could categorize as the beginning of prayer. Specifically calling out to God and simply put, it is rooted in a hope of what God has promised in the midst of a broken world. So here is what I want you to grasp from this. Number one, authentic prayer is rooted in the gospel. The greatest promise that we have been given, church, is that there is salvation in Christ. And that for those in Christ, your eternity is secure. Talk about hope in the midst of brokenness. How often in our prayer do we return to a place of fixing our eyes on the promise that has been given us in Jesus? You want a transformational way to shift your way of prayer? Understand that authentic prayer is rooted in the good news that there is salvation in Christ alone. Secondly, authentic prayer depends upon our knowledge of God's promises. Here's what I have gleaned at the beginning, the very beginning of this study, church. If we do not understand what God has promised us, then our prayer life will be destined to focus simply on the horizontal, not the vertical. We have got to begin a journey of growth in prayer by answering the question, what has God promised in His character, in His sovereignty? What has He promised His church? And allow our prayers to be focused in on that before we ever get to what we want God to do on our behalf. God, what have You already promised me? Because I know that that is secure. Lastly, authentic prayer recognizes that what is in my best interests is what God has already promised. Think about that for a minute. The hard truth about this church is God has not promised that we're going to live to be 97 years old. God has not promised That every time we want healing for a loved one, He will bring healing. God has not promised 
to make our lives here cushy and good and peaches and roses. He just hasn't. But in the midst of all of this, God has promised eternity free from sin. God has promised peace in the midst of burdens and hardship when we fix our eyes on Him. So often our prayer lives become complacent because we do not see God answering our prayers the way we think He should. We resort to wondering exactly why we should pray at all. So why should we pray? We pray because the God of all hope and comfort has fulfilled His promise to mankind through His Son Jesus that started clear back, that promise started clear back in Genesis. We pray because of what I want to read for you out of Hebrews chapter 10. So I want you to turn there because I want, I want us to pray. I, I, I want to answer this question from Scripture. Why should we pray? And this is going to be the transition for us into our time of communion together. Because ultimately, this is where we have to refocus our attentions on these very truths. Hebrews 10. Verses 19 through 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, God has made a way when there seemed to be absolutely no way in our sin to not only bring us into right standing with Himself, but to give us access to Himself through Jesus. And the call and command here is that the closer we get to the day Jesus returns, the more we draw near to Him, understanding that His promises are the only things that will stand. His promises are the only thing that is eternal. So as we transition to pause for a minute in remembrance of the sacrifice Jesus made, very rarely do we see a correlation between our time of communion and our life in prayer. Here's the reality. Where do I stand before the sovereign God? 
If you believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, then this passage in Hebrews 10 should be such a hope and assurance to you. But if you think about where you stand before a sovereign God and you go, I I really don't know. I want you to know that today you can choose to shift where you stand in that way. You can choose to surrender your life to Christ. And every day that you decide not to do that is not you on the fence. It's you saying no to what God has already given us in Jesus. And every day that you have breath in your lungs is a gift and another opportunity for you to decide who will I be surrendered to today. And when we choose to do that, it should not only transform how we think, but it should transform how we pray. And it's a learning process that we're on together. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. Right now, we're just going to pause and we're going to take a moment to reflect upon this, to evaluate our lives before God. If you are not sure where you stand before the Lord, I I just want to advise you, don't take communion. Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians said, if you're not in right standing before God, don't take of it. But then if, if that's you today, I want you to talk to me after service and let's talk about that and seek to bring you to a place where you recognize your need before the Lord and then I'll take communion personally with you if that's where you're at today. But for the rest of you, I want you to reflect upon your life in light of the promises of God. Your life in light of who God is and what He has already promised for eternity. And then your life in light of what God has already done to solidify His promise through the sacrifice of Jesus. So we're going to take some time to reflect on that. And then we're going to take communion together as a reminder of what unites us together, which is Jesus. And then we're going to worship as we prepare to go from here into a world that desperately needs that hope. So let's pause, let's reflect, and then we're going to take communion together. Father, we are a needy, broken people. God, as much as we would like to convince ourselves that we're mostly good, we recognize the truth from Scripture that there is none righteous. Not one. And in light of that, Father, we recognize that we are fully dependent upon your grace and mercy to us. In order to even come before you in prayer. Father, we confess how how prone we are to idolatry. Idolatry of this world, idolatry of ourselves. Father, I pray that you would reveal any wicked way in us and that truly you would bring us to a place of repentance. But Father, even more than that, may we recognize and live in light of a forgiveness that you've given us in Jesus that is so far beyond anything and everything that we deserve or could ever imagine or come up with of our own 
Father, may this not simply be another day that we check a box. May this be the beginning of a journey for each one of us as we strive to grow to be more and more like Jesus, not just in who we are, but in what we say and how we live and how we pray. God, we acknowledge the need to grow so much in this area. But we understand it has to be of your Spirit's doing in our lives. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've promised us in Jesus. We pray this all through him. Amen.